When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 29, Episode 7. Coming up on the show, we've got the Red Eyes of the Guardians, the Electromagnetic Gas Explosion Conspiracy, and a contract with the UFO Goddess. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. Is the contract kind of like doing a deal with the devil? Yeah, it's like 180,000 pages, and you've got to initial everyone. <laughs> you've got to get ten teams of lawyers to look over it. It's yeah. a little bit like that. Is it kind of like the idea of you know making a contract before you come into this lifetime to have UFO interactions? Is that the yeah, kind of path? Yeah, you're exactly spot on. And we see this a lot with these contactee stories where they're eventually told, you know, they have multiple encounters with aliens and they get abducted. And after they've been uh, severely demoralised and traumatised by it, yeah. they're eventually told, oh, you made this choice in your previous life. You're one of us. You agreed to all of this. Yeah, yeah sure we did. There's a little bit of that to this story, but this is a phenomenal story I'm going to be talking about today. It's a brand new book that just came out from uh, Chris Bledsoe. This is his life experience. Where do we know him from? His name's familiar. He's mentioned very briefly in uh, the book American Cosmic. Oh, uh, Pasulka. Yeah, Diana Pasulka. Yeah, that right. Fantastic book from, what was she? She was like a- is it American Cosmic? She's an academic that studied religions. And you know, ex- an expert on on spiritual history, and she started to notice through through her work in uh, you know Catholicism, for example, that a lot of the descriptions of some contactees, some alien contactees, she noticed that it was similar to the very old, very traditional descriptions of angels. Oh yes, I recall this now. Yeah, and she spoke about uh, how you know when we think of an angel, the very popular vision of it, the archetype of it is a very handsome being, shining white with wings. But she goes back through uh, the, the older texts and you know shows that it's certainly not that description. And in fact, it's more in line with what some contactees have described. And that, that was some of the argument of her book. But she also went into you know, there's wild stuff in there. Like she came across uh, people who were connected with intelligence agency circles that were researching uh, UFOs and contact with entities, but also individuals in private industry. Remember, she told this case, she never revealed who it was, but... That's right. There were all these high-level CEOs and, you know, uh, leaders of big tech that were, what, communicating with extraterrestrial yeah, beings? Some, I can't remember all the details. It's a while since we covered yeah, this. It was back in 2019, but it was, it was alluded to that there was a CEO of some big tech company. And I think part of what she was saying was, look, I'm not going to reveal the name, but it's, but it's a name you would know. Yeah, It's almost a household name. And the idea was that this individual would have a kind of ritual where he would lie back on his couch or whatever he used and essentially go into an altered state of consciousness and commune with some kind of alien intelligence that would give him 
information that would help his company or his next invention or whatever they were working on. And it was just such a wild claim, but she also had, um, you know, interesting connections with NASA. And it was just such a fascinating book because after she published it, uh, she was shut down from social media. She started getting cancelled from things. Oh, it was very right. suspicious, yes. right? It was very suspicious when her, her work came out. Like she was getting close to something she shouldn't have been close to. I was just looking at her website actually for American Cosmic and I'll link to it in the show notes. But there's this weird kind of tangent that she's gone on where, yes, yeah, she's describing, you know, weird technology essentially. But then at the very bottom, like after the fold in the page, she talks about, she references a Bitcoin 360 AI German <laughs> trading bot. And you could use this German Bitcoin trading bot okay. to be able to make money. It's called the Direct Kapagenhagen Hafen. <laughs> I like how I'm talking her up, then you just... <laughs> Layer out as some kind of Bitcoin shill. I'm not saying some that. Some Bitcoin no, bot shill. No, I'm actually particularly because I've been, only recently we've been talking about this, the idea of people using, because AI, obviously on the show, we've been talking about AI quite a lot. And I wondered when this would start going into cryptocurrency, where people would start using AI for there's, trading. There's been AI bots for years. There's an AI bot back in, what, 2015, 26, they've been around for years. I wonder if they're as sophisticated though as what, because AI now is is quite amazing. Like we've definitely had a leap in the last what, six months? It makes year? nice pictures on our website. That, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And how do people not know right now that they're actually listening to us and not our AI voices? Because there is a service out there that will clone your voice. Yes, we've already paid for it. <laughs> it's coming. So, uh, Pasulka does mention, and in fact, at the start of the book, she gives a, a special thanks to Chris, to Chris Bledsoe, the author of this new book, UFO of God, the extraordinary true story of Chris Bledsoe, because she was one of the first people that he kind of reached out to and was able to tell his story without any scorn and ridicule. Yeah, and fear. So I'm really looking forward to going into it because it's just, it's going to blow your mind. It's such an incredible story. Uh, but what have you got coming up? Well, I had, uh, I won't go into it now, but in our plus extension, uh, let me just say that the weird lights are back. <laughs> so oh, at your place. At my place. There was a very, very uh, weird incident that I feel like what happens with this stuff is that when you... Um, engage with it as we know it looks back well it's uh, it's definitely escalating to the point where it's affecting my kids now so i'm a little bit freaked out by it so what i wanted to do was to see well uh, is there any other reported similar activity you know around where we live and it just so turns out that's one of the most incredible abduction accounts that i've ever read uh happened not too far from here about uh really? yeah about an hour and a half uh, southwest of here uh and recently there's been uh strange craft you know, you could call them UAPs, but really they are UFOs, have been showing up in the Lockyer Valley as well, have been filmed during storms. Uh, so I'm going to go into some of these incredible reports that also then tie into men in black encounters as well across mm. Queensland. Apparently, Queensland, when you look at you know a report of sightings across Australia, Queensland is the hotspot for UFO activity, particularly in the region that you, are, you and I are in bed. For men in black. Just for UFOs, men in black, you know, unusual encounters. Like we moved so hot into a hotspot. Well, maybe that's how don't they suffer and die in the humidity with those <laughs> stupid black suits. Maybe it's the heat. It's it's sending us insane. Maybe that's what's going on. <laughs> I'm gonna go with that. Well, let's go into this story. Yeah, this is UFO of God, the extraordinary true story of Chris Bledsoe. So I'll run through his his childhood a little bit, because often with people that have these kinds of stories, there's a lot of juicy stuff that happens. And it's almost like they go through a trial by fire. Or they go through a induction. Severe tribulations. Uh, 
And this is certainly the case with Chris. So he grew up in the countryside in North Carolina, uh, surrounded by wilderness, you know, out in the sticks. And one of his first memories, he was two and a half years old, and he remembers uh, being in uh, the home with his grandparents. His mum and dad were out at work. And he he remembers a bonfire in the backyard. And it was they had some stuff in there they were getting rid of, and he was fascinated by the fire. And he remembers just being a toddler, toddling outside, you know, unbeknownst to his grandparents, and just being curious about the fire. And he stood there at the edge of it watching this bonfire and then decided to step into it because he was just, you know, fascinated yeah, by the as flames, as a, as a child would do. Mm. And, of course, he catches on fire. Searing pain comes through him. His pants catch on fire. And luckily, out of nowhere, his grandfather tackled him to the ground, smothered him and doused the flames. Uh, but he had third-degree burns. If he wasn't so young, uh, it would have been much worse. But because, you know, he was young, his skin was already, you know, growing, uh, he, he was he was okay. He got away with it. Uh, but he He's says- incredibly lucky then. If it's possible to become comfortable with, comfortable with pain or heighten one's tolerance of it, my apprenticeship began early and intensified year by year. What does he mean by that? Well, at six years old, he fell off his bunk bed, hit his mouth on the table. Half his teeth were knocked loose. Oh. He needed 24 stitches. He says, the blood I've spilt in Cumberland and Robeson counties could make a creek run red. But for some reason, healing always found him. Now, they really were out in the wilderness, like miles from other houses. They said that they'd only see the occasional car drive past their house. And he said, because the family lived in a 10-foot by 14-foot trailer, that's pretty tight space, the outdoors was like an extension of their living room. Mm. Like they had, you had to get out. You had to just get out away from people. Yeah, get cabin uh, fever. It was essential. So there was always work to be done around the property, he said, and this brought him close to the land. He uh, tended to his grandmother's vegetable garden a lot. He, uh, they had hogs that they looked after and goats. And he watched his father practice carpentry, which was his dad's trade. And he said his dad trusted him with a circular saw at the age of eight. Uh, <laughs> would you do that with no, your son? No. I would have trusted him with the one at 16. <laughs> He's pretty like handy, isn't he? He son? is, but I still wouldn't. <laughs> Everything was trial by fire. He said, I learned early the importance of managing risk and taking responsibility for my own well-being. So he, he was always out there. He was always getting into things. Very capable young man. Now, he didn't finish high school and instead went on to work in construction with his dad. He was basically a natural. He could fix anything too. He would take things apart. And he ran a little side business, like, fixing old ladies' toasters and stuff like that. But eerie things did happen in his childhood. And he had this comfort with the outdoors, but, you know, there were some things that were unsettling. So one night uh, at their church, which was the local Baptist church, uh, they would meet up with the local kids and play. He's alone and he's waiting for his mother to pick him up. This is just after Christmas in 1971. And he's leaning against this young dogwood tree, he explains, not wanting to go back to the church in case, you know, she shows up. And eventually he sees the familiar side of her headlights coming over the hill. And he suddenly says he locks eyes with an owl two feet from his face. Oh, that's and never he, a good sign. He says it's massive. Like its eyes are as big as saucers and he's entranced by it not really frightened. And as his mother's car is coming closer and slowly uh, uh, illuminating them, he says, 
they're not looking away. He's just staring at this owl face to face and the owl is staring back. He had no idea how long it was there watching him. Now, when he got into the car and told his mother, he's like, did you see that giant owl? She's like, what owl? What are you talking about? Did she see anything at all? Nope. She just saw him sitting there under the trees. It's a little bit strange. A, a few days later on New Year's Day, his cousin Kenny and uh, their neighbor Vance came along and they decided to go hunting. They had just a hunting trip out. Uh, I think they were nine and he was 10 at this stage. And he describes how they took posts about 100 yards apart from each other and they're in this cornfield and they're basically trying to shoot doves or pheasants or something. And one came by and his friend Vance shoots first and, and misses. And it kept coming towards Chris and Chris takes a shot and he watches as the dove, it must have got clipped because it started to descend into the forest. So Chris runs after it and he quickly finds it and he he wants to load his gun so he can put it out of its misery. But he fumbles with the shells for his shotgun and, and drops them. Now, he bends down to reach for the shells, but as he stands up, he hears a flutter, a footstep, and then a deafening crack and what feels like a sledgehammer pound into his back and he goes flying face first into the brush. He basically got Dick Cheney'd in the back. <laughs> By what? He got shot in the back? His friend. Why would so his friend do that? Obviously, it's an accident. His friend wanted to get to the dove first and went running into the forest and saw the dove but didn't see that uh, Chris was bending down to pick up the yeah, shells. Yeah, right. And obviously, and he's probably not wearing a vest. Just as he pulls the trigger, Chris stands up and 300 pellets enter his body. They oh. went into his uh, upper back, into his shoulder, into his arm. Uh, 17 are still inside his chest and shoulder to this day. And he, obviously he had to be rushed to hospital. Everyone thought he was going to die. It was just so gruesome. But nobody could explain how none of his vital organs had been hit. And it was such a spread of pellets. The x-ray showed that some of them were in inoperable places. Like one was embedded a half inch from his spine, he said. One was right next to his heart. One was deep in his neck. And looking back on this, he says, something kept me alive. And he actually credits the protective force to this giant owl that kind of surprised him and entranced him Why does earlier. he believe that, though? Does he just have a feeling? He just has a feeling okay. that it's connected. Now, uh, later, when he's, I think he's about 16, 17, or he, gets a, he starts working for his dad, he gets a brand new car. He must be older, like 17 or 18. He gets a brand new car and uh, he's driving at home one day and it kind of breaks down, like there's something wrong with it. So he pulls over on the side of the road, lifts the bonnet, trying to figure out what's wrong and scalding hot fluid, like green, I don't know what, radiator fluid like or coolant. something. Yeah. Fires out of somewhere and just like hits the whole left side of his body. Is this guy a magnet for near-death experiences? That's why I'm going through all this. It's it's like a gauntlet of trauma this guy's going through from the get-go. And this is what he starts to question later. He's like, why does this keep happening to me? He's in hospital. He has He's in hospital for months and he has to get skin grafts. And he says the pain, the pain is so bad because they have to pull him out of this like bathtub or something and then strips of skin and oh, coming off his body. Yeah. Mm. And he says it's so painful he actually tries to escape from the hospital 
and his parents drive him back and they start basically putting him under with anesthetic every time they have to do this procedure with his skin to right. clean his skin. Yep. It's so painful. But he continues. He heals. Uh, eventually, he marries young. He marries his high school sweetheart. And uh, they're in their 20s or something. And 11 months into their marriage, he said, I was on a small island off the coast of Wilmington and he was hunting and running dogs. That night, there was a keg party, he said, at the local hunting club. And he made the drive back because his wife was going to be there and they were going to be seeing some local friends. Now, when he got home, his wife wasn't there. So he just assumed, oh, she must be already at the party. So he, uh, he drives to the party. And when he gets there, he sees her talking to a former high school sweetheart of hers. And he gets upset. Uh, he gets really jealous. And he's like, this is what I feared. I can't believe she did this to me. And he jumps in his car and he starts driving away. And after a few minutes, he calms down and he's like, they're just talking. It's, it means nothing. It's such a small town. Of course, she's going to run into him. And, you know, of course, they're going to talk. It's not, why am I being so ridiculous? This is crazy. And so, he, he drives around and thinks I'll, turns around, thinks I'll give the party another shot. And on his way back, he gets to the church where he saw that owl when he was a kid. And across the road from the church, because there's a bend there, there's like a big sweeping turn, he sees a car rolled over and just completely smoking, like it's all smashed up and smoking. Wheels are still spinning. Like there's been a horrible accident. And he's shocked. He's terrified. He pulls over. Does he go, help? Yeah, he jumps out to see if there's anyone to save. And on the grass, thrown from the car, is a body just mangled and bleeding. And he runs over and it's his wife. Oh, how awful. And he basically, he, he picks her up. He holds her in his arms and he watches her breathe her last few breaths. And she passes away. And it's just, it's just trauma shocking. after yeah. trauma after trauma. He recovers and he continued, like, what can he do? He keeps working. He must have been younger than 20 because at 19, he's now working on the peak of a roof. He's working on this three-story beach house, still in construction. Please don't tell me he falls off. And the scaffolding gives way and he falls through the house and the scaffolding all falls on top of him. He falls four stories through a network of metal bracings, makeshift plywood floors and Plinko chip. He says the bracings, metal bars cut open his arm. His stomach got sliced open. His chest got ripped up. His T6 vertebrae was fractured. And he he was in hospital again to try so and recover. It's suggesting to me that this guy is uh, accident prone. He's. Uh, it sounds like he's irresponsible. It sounds like he doesn't have any type of uh, fear response built into him at all. Like There must be a psychological thing going on I here. I don't know if he's accident prone. I mean... Yeah, the stuff spraying in his face is an accident, I guess, but that wasn't really his fault. And the, I guess, falling through is an accident. But a lot of the stuff, he's a kid. Like, I mean, getting shot in the back, I suppose. But it just he seems to be getting, getting himself he, into these situations. Like, why? So you think this is his fault? I wonder. I wonder, is he somehow seeking out <laughs> dangerous situations? Because there are, no, there actually are psychological conditions. Uh, I'm going to Dick Cheney you in the back of the head one no, day. No, people seek <laughs> out. to get yourself into that situation? People <laughs> deliberately put themselves into danger. It's not Munchausen's, but it's a similar kind of thing. People deliberately put themselves into precarious situations because it generates attention. 
I'm not saying that's him. I'm just questioning because it sounds like he's getting into a lot of these situations. Well, I mean, he's working in construction, so having a construction accident is probably not out of the ordinary. Yeah, but what if we've got so far, we've got him walking into a bonfire. Yeah, he's two years old. Right, we've got that. Then we've got him falling through a roof, getting shot in the back, getting sprayed with uh, boiling hot coolant. And his uh, wife died in his arms. And his wife dies in his arms. I mean, that is unavoidable. Well, he blamed himself for the death of his wife because he thought, what if I stayed at that party? What if I didn't? What, what if I wasn't so immature and I just stayed and talked to her and wh- why did I get so jealous? So it obviously it, it ate him away for a long time. Anyway, uh, uh, he said on the other side of those two years, he had scarred up, but he was mostly intact. And one day a friend of his invited him to lunch one day and it was actually to set him up with his sister, Yvonne. And he said, look, I, I don't know if this guy had a high opinion of me or maybe he didn't like the guys that his sister was dating. But it didn't matter, he said, because we hit it off. Like he really, it was almost love at first sight with this guy's sister, Havon. And her family was a big part of the local Pentecostal church. And he basically realized it, they had basically founded the church their family had like 100 years ago, very big part of their life. So he knew that he would have to become part of the church if he wanted to get yeah. with this girl. Yeah. Um, but he, at around this point, he he actually started to become more spiritual, become more religious, and his interest in the church started to deepen. Well, you probably would after all those experiences. Well, that it's interesting. It's almost like it came around in the other way that you're saying. Once he started to read the Bible and become more spiritual, he then looked back on all those experiences and, and thought, you know, that w- actually was strange that all that happened to me and I'm still alive. It's actually quite miraculous. How did I survive all of that by, you know, by the age of 19? And what's the meaning of having so many near misses and also so much pain? Anyway, it really went well with this girl, Yvonne, and they got married in 1983, uh, moved in together at Carolina Beach, and they lived very happily together. Eventually built themselves a home in Fayetteville in North Carolina, had their first son, Chris Jr., in 1989. And he was going quite well with his business too. They had a nice house, they had a pool, uh, lots of space. And he was proud of the everything they'd achieved in his little family. But it was about this time he started having symptoms of IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease. And his commitment to the church was ramping up at the time. Like he studied, studied the Bible day and night. And he tried to keep up with all his responsibilities with work. But the harder he tried, the worse his IBS symptoms got. Like his gut just became debilitating. And people at work and at church got used to the the scene of him like, oh, excuse me, sorry, and he'd have to get up and, and go to the toilet. He'd have to leave because his gut was just causing him so many problems. But he still made it work. Like he still just plowed through it despite the IBS problem. Uh, their second son, Jeremy, was born a couple of years later in 1991. Uh, Ryan was born in 1993. Oh, sorry, was it Jeremy or yeah, first son, Junior, 1989, second son, Jeremy, 1991, Ryan, 1993, Emily, 1996. So very quickly, quite a large family. And his business took off as well because this was the 90s and there was a bit of a building boom. There was a point where he, he once sold six houses in one day. Mm, like they were wow. doing really, really well. And all throughout this period, he said he would have about 70 active home construction sites running at once. Wow. And he was managing them all himself. It sounds like a high-stress situation, though, again, that he's putting himself in. Does this lead him to have more accidents? Does he have more incidents occur during this time? Well, obviously, it makes his IBS worse because that's related to stress. Yes. 
you know, he's stressing out because there's so many things to keep track of, especially on his own. And, you know, as you surmised, he eventually gets burnt out. His IBS just gets worse and worse and worse. He's got four young kids at home. It's obviously unsustainable. And then the market takes a major downturn after 9-11. And this is the Mm. beginning of this downward spiral. His health and career and reputation start to go downhill. Houses go unsold. Interest and loan repayments start to accumulate. And within two years, they've basically burnt through the entire savings, the cash reserves of the company. God, you do have to feel sorry for the guy, though. He's had all these terrible things happen to him physically, but then he's experiencing the loss of his business and his financial stability, and it's just awful. This is nothing compared to what's coming. Oh, no. So, obviously, this is taking a toll even more, and it's clear that... uh, you know, people are discouraged with what's going on. And he he's now got IBS so bad that he can't leave the house. So he's trying to do all his work on the phone. And it's just, it's basically impossible. Um, and he's missing doctor's appointments. He can't buy a food that's healthy for him, which he needs because of his stomach. Eventually his doctor says, if you don't sell your business, you're going to, you're going to die. This, mm-hmm. this stress is going to kill you. He starts seeing, instead of selling his business, he starts seeing a psychiatrist to deal with the stress. And what is rather extreme, isn't it? What does the psychiatrist do? Prescribes drugs. Prescribing lithium. Lithium? Yeah. What? Does he think he's manic depressive? This is what this psychiatrist diagnoses him with. It just, well, just starts prescribing him lithium to start with. He's then on to four other drugs. Eventually, he's on a, you know, a cocktail of five different psychiatric drugs. But he holds onto the business. But everything obviously gets worse. He starts to feel strange in addition to this suffering from IBS and business stress because of all these drugs. Eventually, yeah, this psychiatrist had him on five medications, but he'd always trusted doctors. So why not trust this treatment that he's getting? He thought, oh, eventually it'll come good. But by the summer of 2003, he's bedridden. He can't work due to all the medications. And now his blood is getting toxic because... One afternoon, his wife and kids come home and find him unconscious on the ground in the vacant lot next to their home. Well, hang on. How does he end up in the vacant? Did he somehow, what, become delirious and wander out? Listen to this. He said, what I didn't know at the time was that the medications the doctor was prescribing me were slowly poisoning me to death. So what, what a he, drug interaction. What he remembers is he wakes up in the emergency room. And he's having an out-of-body experience. He looks down on his body from above and he hears the doctors in the hallway talking about him because he's out of it. He's unconscious. And they're having a conversation saying, oh, yeah, this is the 113th patient we've got from this this guy, this psychiatrist. So this guy... But this trust doctors, Ben. This guy is over-prescribing he's these dangerous drugs. And what they discovered was that over several months, the lithium had built up to a toxic level in his blood and it had started to damage his brain as well. But you have to wonder, why did a pharmacist not pick that up? I mean, there's supposed to be, you know, basically, you know, checks in place that prevent this kind of thing. Well, the psychiatrist died or killed himself, they're not sure which, from his own drugs just a few weeks later. So it's like there was something wrong with the guy anyway. He was treating himself with lithium. And then he's got 113 patients that end up in the hospital. 
And, and there's all this talk on how, you know, they he wanted to sue, but the guy was dead. And like, it was just all this, he just basically let it go. But obviously now something really had to change. So he, he buckled and he sold the company. He basically folded the company, barely broke even. But expenses kept piling up. And he said by 2005, they had nothing. They lost their house and with his IBS, with his Crohn's disease, he couldn't work. And by 2006, his dad, who was still kind of working a little bit, basically saw the situation he was in and said, look, um, you know, I, I, I can help you out. Just come and do this job for me. It's on the coast. We're reframing a, a, a beach house or framing a beach house. Um, you know, you know the guy you worked for him when you were 16 you know, it'll be an easy job. Just come and do this. At least it's something. So he takes the job and uh, he needs help with it. So Junior actually takes time off school to come and do the job with him. Mm -hmm. And this is towards the end of 2006. So they, they work on this job, right? They do this framing job. And two weeks after Christmas in 2007, this is when their lives change forever. They'd gotten paid for this job of framing this house. And Junior had made friends, his son Junior had made friends with uh, two other guys who had done the framing with them. And Chris just wanted to go home. Like he'd got his paycheck. He's still kind of depressed because he's got no job after this. But Chris is a young guy. There are other two young guys. They've just got their big check for a job well done. They want to party. They want to celebrate. So they actually want to do a, a, a fishing trip. And Chris is like, yeah, I don't really want to go with these guys. But he feels bad for his son because his son's sure. let his education pass to do this job. So yeah. he's like, sure, son, I know a great place near Cape Fear River back in Fayetteville. Let's jump in my truck. We'll grab our rods and we'll go like spend the afternoon fishing and you know, we'll have some beers and it, it would be a great afternoon. So they all jump in his red Ford pickup and off they go. And he says, you know, it's a long drive. They get into this property and it's just surrounded by trees, this four acres wide pine forest everywhere. And he said, as long as my stomach didn't act up, this might pass for a good day. So it's 2.30 in the afternoon and he says the, the guys get set up by the riverside. They get the rods out and they're just going to drink beers and, and fish. And Chris decides to go on a, a bit of a walk in the woods and he just feels like being alone, you know, just because he's a bit depressed. So he walks along the river, you know, looking for the birds and wildlife that had captivated him as a kid. And he comes to this old oak tree beside a gully and he, he remembers this from being a kid. And he just sits with his back against it and watches the water ease by. Anyway, sunset that day was about 5.18 p.m. and starting to get dark by about four. So he decides to walk back and check on the guys and, and his son, Junior. And they're having a great time. Like they're just, you know, <laughs> they're off work. They're relaxed. Yeah. They're, you know, fishing. It's fun. As you do. And his son's like, dad, we, you know, we want to stay a little bit longer. We're going to build a fire and, you know, we're not ready to go back yet. So he's like, okay, that's fine. You know, you guys, you know, keep fishing, keep having fun. And I'm just going to go for another walk. So he goes for another walk. It's getting darker and there's still a bit of light. Like you can still see where he's going. And he starts heading to this clearing where they'd driven in from. And he starts to hear something in the brush and at first he thinks it's a deer right so he stops moving but then whatever it is also stops moving so he's like that's weird takes a few more steps and it's keeping up with him again and he stops and whatever this is stops again now he can't see it he has a look through the forest but he can't see what this is he can just hear it and as he keeps moving forward eventually he realizes whatever's pacing next to him is bipedal doesn't sound like a deer. It's two, something on two feet. Is it heavy? 
he doesn't mention. He makes it to the clearing and he feels relieved. He's like, oh, finally, this, I'm in this open field and he feels safer. Whatever had been walking with me, he said, I'd, I'd left it behind in the woods. And there was this open gate at the crest of the hill that they had driven in on. And he walks up the gentle slope and he wants to, you know, have a look up there. And about 20 yards away from this gate, he, he sees over the crest of the hill what looks like the sun kind of setting and, and the crest of it is just peeking out. And it's like a reddish orange silver just sitting on the horizon glowing. Thinks nothing of it, just c- keeps climbing this hill. And when he looks up, he now sees the entire sun and it's shining brilliantly. Like it is really like looking at the sun but everything around him is dark. So it's, it's not the it's, sun. It's, it's an not the sun. It's like, what the, what the hell is going on? As, he's, as he climbs the hill, he sees a second sun, the same size and color as the first one. And he's like, he's absolutely stunned. He, he doesn't know what to think. He immediately drops to his knees in awe of what he's looking at. Not only is it bizarre that there's these sun-like objects up there, but that the light isn't behaving like the sun would. It just doesn't make sense. They're not lighting up the field around him. They're just two flaming spheres hovering in the distance in perfect silence. Each of them is about 45 feet in diameter, like as big as houses. And he's just filled with terror and dread now watching these things. He's curious, but he's like, what the hell should I do? Should I go? Should I stay? Should I run? What on earth are these things? Immediately, he starts thinking of his son. He Why just, is he getting terror and dread, though? I mean, obviously, if you see something, you said that, that he's curious, but the terror and dread, it seems like it's irrational. Well, I, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, if you see something unknown and two giant flaming balls in front of you in the sky, I think most people would be would be scared. I don't know. I don't know. If you think you'd just be like, oh, yeah. No, no I, I would be like, here's oh some content for the show on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I know that I'm certainly desensitized to this kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, well, thanks, that'd be great. Thanks, thanks for, for that. Thanks for showing up, giant flaming yeah, alien thanks, balls. Content gods, that's great. <laughs> no, but I, but I think about it, right? I think a, a lot of people would just have a reaction of like, oh, that's so weird. Or oh, this is amazing. Like, look at this. It's incredible. I'm just suggesting that possibly he's got a uh, subconscious memory of this stuff because that would elicit this response of fear. Yeah, maybe. He doesn't, it, it doesn't allude to that though. It's just, they're just scary things. Like it's just the the unknown, the alienness of them that's that's terrifying him. And yeah, he's, he's stuck. He's not sure what to do. But before he goes back to make sure his son's okay, he, he still wants to get a better look because he doesn't want to go all the way back there and then find out that he's looking at like a blimp or something, even though that's crazy. He just wants to be 100% sure. So he's still on his knees and he starts slowly edging towards the crest of the hill, like army style crawling yeah, towards yeah. them. And he just sees these swirling red-orange flames like just sitting there. He's awestruck, mesmerized. He has no idea what he's looking at. So it's this quarter-mile trek back to where his son is and he prepares to run down the the path and get back to them and this sudden realization hits him that he's being watched by these things mm. he doesn't he can't explain why but he just feels like they're they're not that they're beings they're alive and they're looking at him and then a third one drops down this third giant 45 foot across flaming sphere 
and he feels like this one's in charge for some reason. He, again, he doesn't know why he thinks this, but that's just what it feels like. This this is the leader. It's giant red-orange flames coming off it, and he feels this intense connection with them. His hair stands up on end. The next thing he knows, he's 50 yards from the fire where his son was running towards it, just sprinting. He has no idea how he got from that crest of the hill in front of these things to the fire. And he starts running towards the fire. He comes to the clearing. He's like, thank God I'm away from those things. And he he runs into the circle and he notices a, a couple of odd things straight away. His truck isn't where he left it. It's facing in the opposite direction. He's sure he parked it facing the river. It's now facing away from the river. Uh, he remembered the large pile of sticks that they had gathered to make a fire and everything that was basically gone like the fire was almost completely burnt out all the fuel was gone and one of the the boys from the trip just comes up to him and says where the hell have you been it's like what do you mean i was i was just up the road in the field no you weren't we've been all here all night looking for you you see your truck move? That's because we've been driving up and down looking for you all night everywhere in the field. And How like, long's all night? He's like, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? I've only been gone a few minutes. And he's like, wait, where's my son? Well, And they say, well, he went back to when you were first, where you were first went walking. He's been off looking for you. And, you know, we've been looking after the fire and all that gear. And he panics because the only thought in his head is like, where's my kid? Where's my kid? What? What's going on? Where's my kid? He's gone into the forest at night alone looking for me. And he just starts running into the forest in the direction they said he'd gone to try and find Junior. Now he starts jogging through the woods looking for him. And he just, he's like, Junior, Junior. He's screaming at top of his lungs. And he just, off in the brush, he hears this, duh, duh. He's like, what, what? And he sees someone stumbling, trying to get up. He's like, dad. And then he he sees his son kind of snapping out of this. He's like, Dad, he's really angry. Dad, why did you leave me? Where did you go? There were these creatures. I was paralyzed. I couldn't move. He's like, Junior, I was only gone for 20 minutes. He's like, Dad, you've been gone for four hours all night. So he leads him back to the fire. His son's like obviously scared, shaken up, angry. Does he describe the creatures? Yeah, he leads him back to the fire. And he starts um, explaining what had happened. And Chris is just bamboozled because he hasn't had any alcohol. He's not on any medication. Um, there's He hasn't eaten anything unusual today. He, even his stomach hasn't played up. But there's this strange gap in the memory of him cowering in the field. But nothing makes sense. How could four hours have passed? And uh, his son explains that when they went to look for him... Uh, he saw two red spheres off in the woods. And it's almost like his son said these two spheres, these glowing red spheres noticed him and started to rapidly come towards him. Now his son started to back away into the forest to try and hide from them. But they stopped 15 feet away from him, basically blocking his path to get back to the fire. And he said they were mechanical. He said one was a fiery red eye open while the other closed like a camera shutter. 
But always one of the two eyes was watching him. Like one of the two was closed and then the other one would open like in this oh, weird sequence. But they're like mechanical, they're machines. Is it functioning to hypnotize him in some way or? Well, yeah, it paralyzed him? him. It didn't hypnotize mm. him. It fully paralyzed him. And he, he couldn't yell, he couldn't move. And for two hours, he lay in the brush controlled by these things. Like them just doing that sequence of opening and closing and flashing these bright red mechanical eyes at him and he's just paralyzed. But he's laying in the brush for two hours. What's happening during those two hours? Does he have any recollection of that? He's just stuck there. No, he's just stuck there. He's got full recollection. He's just stuck there. (laughs) What the hell is going on? And that's when his dad turned up. Like they disappeared and then his dad turned up. Mm. When they get back to the campfire, the other two guys are spooked now. And he says... They don't easily scare. Like these are tough guys who have been, you know, doing hard manual labor Season. and, you know, yeah, kind of tough guys. And they don't usually scare, but they are shitting themselves at this point. So immediately Junior's like, okay, we've got to go home. We've just got to get out of here. We've got to go home. As soon as he says that, another one of the other men says, oh my God, and starts pointing up into the sky. Nine balls of light have now formed a ring uh, up in the sky around them. And they're watching as it slowly starts to circle, circulate this, this circle of lights in the sky. And it then scatters like salt. They all scatter like salt, these balls. And three of them descend into the woods right next to them, like across from the river where they're fishing. And they're all about 45 feet across, the same size as the ones Chris saw. And they're just hovering there on the other side of the river, like blazing in this stupefyingly bright light. And he says, that's when all hell broke loose. Like the boys just freaked out. They're like, it's all over. You know, they're coming for us. Shut up. Let's go. Get in the truck right now. Let's go. And he's like, guys, get in the truck. And just screaming, yelling. I want to see my wife again. God damn it. Let's just go. Let's go. Let's go. Forget about the fishing poles. Let's go. So he gets in the driver's seat. They somehow all manage to pile into the car and he floors it. They don't know if the planet's being invaded. They don't know if this is like... The, You'd have no idea. You'd be confused and you'd be um, erratic. One of them, uh, like they, they think, is this happening all over the world right now? One of them knows a doomsday prepper and they're like, do we go and see him and get guns and ammo and food? Like, what do we actually do? Do we stay and fight? If we stay and fight, might we might save the earth from the... Inf- like all this crazy stuff is going on. They're just screaming at each other. And Chris just guns it out of there and they head for this forested section of the road, all of the, the boys screaming in the back and two, the two fiery red orange orbs he saw earlier are still there. All right, the main one's gone, but the other two are still there. And uh, actually that third one comes down in front of their truck and he has to slam on the brakes. They're skidding on the mud and they just stop like maybe 15 feet in front of it. And this thing is now glowing in this dazzling, like, blue light. And he says it's um, like the surface has this strange effect where there's spikes of almost bolts of energy just flying off it. And they're just trapped there, stuck in the the field of this thing. If it wasn't for so many of them, like what you're saying was nine that circled around them, you would begin to wonder, well, is this some kind of uh, plasma? You know, is it a uh, ball lightning? Is it just they're freaking out over a, a very rare and unusual natural phenomena? But it seems like it's far more than that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's more than just some kind of um, energy effect because there's a craft. There's obviously mm-hmm. a craft that's responsible for this because one of the guys mentions in the back and they're screaming in the back like, I know someone that lives on the edge of the field. They might have a phone. Maybe we can get help because there's apparently a, a family that lives in a trailer right. Like right on the edge of the field. And so they spin the car around and start heading to this trailer and they get to the trailer and the windows are all lit up. The front door to the trailer is open. The TV's on inside, but there's no one in there. Suggesting and, they've been taken? Yeah, like one of the guys gets out and he goes through and he's like knocking on the inside door because maybe they're in there and there's like a section where they might be and he's knocking and screaming. Chris is honking the horn. No one comes out. And they're like, what the hell do we do? So they drive back to where they were. That same giant ball of fire is still there. And Chris basically eases the truck to about 30 feet away. And they're just stopped, mesmerized, thinking, what do we do? This is the only way out. Like, What do we do? And then they hear a gunshot. This crack, like it's a clear gunshot. And they all look around. They have no idea where it came from. And this craft just kind of ripples a bit. Like it's something happens. This is this glowing orb thing. Yeah, this giant 45 size of a house, like radiant ball in front of them. Something happens. They hear a second shot, right? And then finally a third. They still have no idea where it's coming from. This clear cracking gunshot. And slowly this giant thing just goes and starts turning towards where the gunshot came from. And they're like, holy crap. As it turns, they can see its shape. And it's a tic-tac. Oh. It's a giant tic-tac because they can see its shape through their energy. And it slowly starts to move towards their truck. And they're like, holy crap, it's going to hit us. It's coming closer and closer and closer. And at the last moment, this giant object floats over the the pickup and they can see it through the top. And uh, they they said they feel this weird um, static kind of come over them as it goes over. It it lifts off, heads towards the tree line, and they watch it hover for a moment and then just shoots up into the sky like a cannon and disappears. So the cracks, is that coming from the family that had fled their home? They have no idea. Um, no idea who made those shots, but it, it may have, you know, saved them from whatever was going to happen. But there's still two other of two others of these giant balls, so these crafts, so they just gun it. They, they have an option to go through. They go through the gate. They um they they hit the road and Chris is trying to not go too fast because he remembers how his first wife dies and he doesn't want his son to die in this car accident. Yeah. Uh, so eventually they come to the curve where his wife died, like trying to flee from these things and these giant orbs are following them and everyone's screaming in the back and he comes to that church and that curve and he looks up. And one of the orbs is right there, like right over the curb where he's, his first wife died. And he says, I can't say why, but this orb's presence above the site of the most traumatic moment of my life filled me with a sense of peace. He says, as he's, and he slows the car down, and he's taking the curve. And he says he just felt this immersion in supreme grace. Time seemed to slow down. And he said, for the first time, I truly believed that what had happened to her wasn't my fault. He said, for the first time, I believe that being able to hold her in my arms as she died was a gift to both of us. 
My jealousy hadn't ruined our lives, he said. I could almost see us there in the grass, two bloody 20-year-old kids holding onto each other and what little remained of their shared life. And meanwhile, he's having this spiritual experience and the boys in the back are like, what are you doing? Speed up, we're going to die, like pounding on the seat. And he's just la, 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 like no, going around the influenced. corner. This is not good. I mean, even though it's like it seems to be a positive thing for him, you've got two kids that are being traumatized by this. And he looks up at the craft because he can see, clearly see the craft, and he sees that there's windows now. He can see these um, a row of square glowing lights that look like windows facing them, and he swears that there's like a silhouette of something somewhere where watching him from mm-hmm. that window. Mm-hmm. That's actually commonly reported in a lot of these encounters that people have. You know, of uh, crafts pursuing their motor vehicles late at night. You know, you hear it all the time. And all he wants to do is just absorb, slow down, actually get out and absorb the entirety of the message that's coming from this being, from this craft. No, get the hell away from it. And that's what they're saying. Chris, go. What are you doing? His son's screaming at him to go. He snaps out of it. Time goes back to normal. He keeps driving. Now, there's there's more of a chase because these orbs do keep following them. Uh, but they do manage to get to the homes of the other two men and drop them off. And, you know, they just run inside and, like, turn on all the lights and get their guns. And, you know, they're just terrified. And Chris Jr. begs his dad to go the long way home because normally they'd have to go past that um, curve again where his first wife died. But they make it home. They, they make it home safe. Um, you know, Chris just turns on all the lights in their home and, like, sh- rat- shuts all the doors, locks all the windows. And luckily, uh, Yvonne and his other kids were staying with family and they weren't back until Friday or the end of the week. So he was thinking, you know, at least if there's an alien invasion, they might be okay. You know, they're safe. They're away from this. Um, why are they jumping though to alien invasion? Like, why are they going to that extreme? Just don't know. They just don't know what's going on. I mean, these aren't guys who know anything about UFOs or you know, anything like that. They see this all these craft coming down from the sky, they're just thinking like, this is like the movies. This yeah, is worst like, case scenario. This is War of the World stuff. And he's expecting to turn on the TV and just see like the news covering where this is happening in the world and like this massive alien invasion. And he's like, we've got to see what's going on, Chris. He turns on- It's nothing. Turns on the TV and it's like an old Elvis movie playing, like some rerun or something. And over the sound of the TV, he hears this, and it's a chopper. There's a helicopter going out to where they just were. So he's like, there's something going on. Obviously, there's something to this. And it's worth mentioning that uh, one of the Air Force bases, I think it's Bledisloe. It's a Bledisloe Air Force base, is very close to where they live. Mm, okay. So that always ties in with these stories. There's always some yeah, kind of some military, military element. So um, they're just, just starting to calm down. And they've got a lot of dogs because they go hunting all the time. And he hears the kennel just erupting. The dogs are going bananas. And he spent his entire life with hunting dogs. So he knows when they're really scared. Yep. Like, And the only time you hear it is when there's a bear, right? But now they're like crying, freaking out. So he goes out to the kennel and he convinces uh, Chris Jr. to come with him. And they get close to the kennel. And they notice the dogs are barking into the forest. Like they're all, all their attention is going towards the forest. Mm-hmm. And at first, they thought they were being robbed, like someone was stealing something from their garage. And But anyway, they go out there and they take their toughest dog, basically. They take the, their big hunting dog who never fails them. And what they're going to do is 
Chris has his son behind him. They've got the hunting dog and they're going to usual, do the usual thing. The dog knows what to do. You send them into the forest. They flush out the prey. You go around to the other side and you basically ambush the prey. And that's what they're going to do. At least that's what he thinks he's going to do. So he sends this dog in. The dog goes flying into the forest, you know, foaming out of the mouth, ready to kill. And unbeknownst to Chris, his son just gets so scared, he runs back to the house. And Chris makes his way over to where they're going to intercept the prey. And he just basically, and he still thinks there's an intruder or something. He kneels behind a tree and he just waits. And he hears something behind him. Now he turns around expecting to see his son. And he just says, oh my God, standing four feet in front of him is this three and a half foot tall being glowing the color of the moon, two red eyes and a glassy translucent triangle on its chest, like a weird symbol, like a elongated triangle. An isosceles triangle? Maybe. And he's just shaking with terror. And he actually says to this thing, all right, I'm sorry, you got me. I'm sorry for running. I surrender. And he like puts his hands up because this is an alien invasion, right? The being, as he's saying this, the being telepathically answers saying, no, you don't understand. We're not here to hurt you. We're here to help you. And a few seconds pass and he's just staring at this being. And then all of a sudden, the dog just comes flying out of the forest, like mid-leap drool going everywhere, jaws wide open, like it's just going to latch onto this alien's head and it just goes flying through it. (laughs) Through it? Well, the alien just like, it just basically blinks out of existence and the dog goes flying through where it was just standing and the dog keeps running. So I know he said it was, you know, a a short being, but uh, like the red eyes is unusual. Is it a grey with red eyes? No, apparently not. He doesn't describe big almond-shaped black eyes. The height matches... But no, there's never any mention of any particular features you would say would be a gr- typical grey. Does he describe the red eyes as being luminescent or is he just saying they're red? Yeah, no, I think they glow. I think they they are glowing in a way. Um, immediately he thinks of his son. He's like, holy crap, where's my son? He, he runs back. Um, luckily, he, his son's fine. And he just says, Junior, we, we've got to get the hell out of here right now. They jump back in the truck and they drive to this hayfield that's five miles away. This is their reasoning. They park in the middle of it because they think that because no, they... that's one of the dumbest <laughs> things you can do. I know, it's like an open spot. But because they have a panoramic view around them, they think they're fine. They think they're going to be cool, right? And they just stay up all night, exhausted, trying to... And eventually they fall asleep because they're just watching. I mean, it would be terrifying if you're not familiar with this stuff. I mean, even if you yeah. are familiar with this stuff, you would be terrified. You would be peeing your pants. <laughs> You'd no, be like, not- I'm going to get content out of this. Yeah, if that's how you would behave, I, I would just be like, eh, do something different. As if you would. Do you something would unusual. Be, like, do something non-standard. Panicking. Like, abduct me from a disco or something. Do something a little bit different. You just got your iPad out. You're taking notes. <laughs> They ab- they abduct- Is it striking me with some yeah. weird instrument? They abduct you and you just whip a microphone out. You want to do an interview on the spot? It's like, can you not talk telepathically? Because I can't get the audio. Yeah. You need to speak verbally. Can you turn down the thrusters of the ship? Because it's interfering with the background noise in my recording. Ben's going to bitch about it. So try and just reduce that background noise. Yeah. No, I would be, I would be terrified. And of course you would. Be. They wake up and of course... They're like, what the hell just happened? 
Uh, they meet with the other two guys who had been on the fishing trip and obviously they're traumatized. They just want to grab their gear and not talk about it. Uh, they drop in on the family who was in that trailer and they say to them, what did you see last night? Like, did you hear the noise? Did, how come you didn't come out when we were beeping? Were you even here? And the family's like, we were here asleep. What are you talking about? And when they told them what they saw, they saw immediately in the eyes of this family that lived in the trailer, just pure judgment. Like, oh, these are crazy people. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, no, we, judgment. we didn't see the UFOs last night, weirdos. And that's when they realized that they're going to have to handle this carefully for their reputation, for his business reputation, you know, all of that. So Wednesday night comes around and they're just trying to get over it. They're sitting down watching TV and the dogs go ballistic again. And Chris is terrified. His son's terrified. But Chris says, look, we've got to finish this. He actually starts to get angry. He goes outside with his shotgun, sees a brilliant white light in his neighbor's property. And his neighbor's got a tree farm. So he can just see this brilliant light coming from somewhere, but he can't see what the source of it is. So he gets his gun and he starts heading towards the neighbor's fence. He jumps the fence and again, like he goes prone and he starts crawling towards this light. But it gets to the point where there's some kind of, it almost like when you get two magnets and you, you can't put there's them together. There's a repulsion. That's what he starts feeling and he can't go any further. There's something stopping him. So he actually has to retrace his steps back and jump the fence again and go back to his property. And when he stands up, um, there's two beings ahead of him. Same, the same as what he had seen two nights before. Again, short, red eyes, same uh, triangle on their chests. And they're just standing there looking at each other. And this overpowering emotional understanding crashes over him. And they communicate to him, he says, this obliterating epiphany, the singular ultimate importance of all living beings, he said. It comes through, and it's hard to explain, it comes through almost like a, a philosophy and a thought and an emotion all in one that just fills his entire being. And his whole worldview, he says, is reorganized in this moment. And he gets an understanding of the fundamental priority and sacredness of life. And as he's standing there with this epiphany, he's holding the shotgun and this disgust comes over him because he starts to think about all the animals that he's killed with this with the shotgun. He sees it now as a murdering tool. He's like, how could I have done this? And he, he sinks into this state of mourning and regret and the two beings flicker and, and disappear. Now, he says, finally, it seemed I'd been given a clue as to what all this was about. A problem existed that might be fixed, a sickness that could be healed, he said. The terror and trauma of the past days were pointed towards some benevolent end. This was to become my work whenever and however that work appeared to me. This was the message that the beings had gone to such extraordinary ends to convey. This understanding remains at the core of who I am. I never squash a bug. I never fish or hunt. And through all my trials since, this belief, he says, has guided me, giving me the hope and courage I have needed to carry on. Friday, he says, Yvonne and the kids would come back to a changed father and a changed son. So they really have done something to him. And it doesn't seem to be an immoral thing. He now sees life as something truly sacred and something that needs to be protected. Which it is, and it does. But I just find it a very 
unusual way of conveying that. Yeah, it's a weird way to go about it, just to buck someone for four hours, do God knows what to them, harass them in the middle of the night, chase them in the car, terrify your son. Oh, by the way, life is sacred. Yeah. (laughs) I just, I don't trust the agenda of these things. There's always like, and it it does fit in with a whole heap of other reports, but even modern reports. And in fact, I'll talk about some of this in the plus extension. I've even still today in recent encounters, Mm. People are getting the warnings of climate change, nuclear war, you know, all that kind of stuff is being told to them by extraterrestrials that are traumatizing them. That's true. Why? His wife gets home, doesn't believe a word of it, does not believe a word. And words, rumors start to get around the community that he's lost his mind or that worse, he's in league with the devil. Because remember, these are mm. hard, hardcore churchgoers. And uh, they don't even like Halloween. They're not putting up with this alien business. And it destroyed his reputation. Nobody would give him any work. Uh, his kids were mocked at school, came home crying, lost how friends. Did, how did people find out? Was it Just obviously, small town. Yeah, people talk. Yeah. And basically, uh, Yvonne forbid the family from discussing it. She wanted to move on. She didn't want anything to do with this. But what was strange, in the weeks following this, all of his IBS symptoms had vanished. This had been plaguing oh, him for so years. Like a spontaneous healing. Yeah, well, something happened in those four hours. He stopped taking his medication. He didn't have to go to the bathroom anymore. All the swelling was gone. It was incredible. But no one, even though he could now work because he was mobile again, no one would give him work because no one trusted him anymore. And it started to grate on him. Where had I been for those four hours? Now, whenever he would try and remember, he said he would be overtaken by the most severe headache. It just was so painful, like an intense migraine. And he said he'd never gotten headaches in his life. This was totally new. And then the owls showed up. Oh, the owls. Almost. See, it ex- is the greys. Well, I mean. The greys are associated with screen memories of owls. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. look at Mike Clellan's experiences. Yeah, that, there is some history of that. So these owls show up and they just start being incredibly disruptive and noisy over the family's house. Like just hooting and hollering, all screeching at each other all night, these giant owls. And it gets to the point where the kids are just going outside, just saying, Shut up, these owls. And just every night they're at it. Uh, and life was tough now because he couldn't get work and he had to sell a bunch of stuff to keep the family af- afloat. He ended up losing his truck. Um, Yvonne had to live a double life. She wanted to stay part of the church, but the rest of the church thought he was possessed yeah. by demons. Um, the a difficult situation. The kids had to watch some of the church leaders driving up to their property and sprinkling holy water on the ground. Yeah, they probably think he's in league with the devil, right? <laughs> like they actually thought that the ground itself was cursed by Satan. Um, and ultimately, this is of quite a long part of his story, but I'll summarize it a little bit. He found solace in nature. He essentially withdrew a lot from the family. He went on a lot of solo camping trips. Um, he just felt so judged and isolated. He became a bit of a pariah. You have to wonder, though, if there's been you know a greater plan put into place here because if he's going out into the wilderness a lot by himself, isn't that a prime opportunity for them to get to him? Well, nothing happens after this. He doesn't get abducted when he's going out into the wilderness, but he does, I mean, even at home, he locks himself away in his study um, and his son now starts waking up screaming at least twice a week. Oh, 
He's 17 years old and he comes crying to his mother and, and father's room at night wanting to sleep in their bed. What's he experiencing? Just nightmares? We might get into it later, but yeah, just horrific nightmares. He doesn't want to talk about it. Um, things slightly change when they get an internet connection. The kids are begging them to get the internet. And Chris discovers MUFON. He had no idea what MUFON was or even that it existed. And he starts to actually type his experience out because he saw some documentary with Stanton Friedman on the TV as well because they just bought a TV. They hadn't had a TV in years. And he's like, maybe there's people out there that can help me. So he starts writing this out to MUFON. But then he's like, no, I can't. I'll send out an investigator and you know, my wife will kill me. I just can't do it. And he goes through this struggle of weeks where he doesn't know what to do. He wants the help, but he doesn't want to bring this attention on the, on the event that shan't be named. Until eventually he does talk to his son. And his son's like, dad, we need help. Like We've got to figure out what happened. And he, finally, he does decide to send that email. And immediately, MUFON gets back to him. Then they want to send an investigator down. Now, this is a guy from a local MUFON chapter. And after a few weeks, uh, they send him down. He's, he's very nice to them. Uh, you know, it's, it's Avon's away on some weekend trip. This is how he plans it. So she doesn't even know what's happening. But this guy knows that he's not crazy. Here's the story, interviews them separately. The details check out. He sends the story to the top brass at MUFON. They're now very interested. And it just so happens with this timing, MUFON had just signed a deal with the Discovery Channel. I recall this. For a TV series. Yeah, that's where they were getting their reports from, from people reporting to MUFON. Yeah, and was looking for, MUFON was now looking for cases. They they needed content for the TV show. So they get back to him and they start convincing him that the only way he can get answers is to let them do a TV show about him. Uh, an, uh, an episode of this TV show. You know, it's kind of a... Oh, uh, it's a strange pivot, though, because, you know, or, I mean, I know that already your reputation's been destroyed and you, you're clearly very distressed by this and you need help, but you would think that you would want to close it down and then just move away from it. Why would you expose yourself so publicly? Yeah, it's a great, great point. But I mean, he basically went through that thinking when he was in the wilderness. I see. But you, you're right. Now it's at the point where he's got nothing to lose and he still just wants answers. Right. And okay. he's already a pariah. Um, yeah, so could you really make it any worse? Yeah. So, But Yvonne hears this and she's like, no way. Like, no way we're doing a TV show. Absolutely not. Until one afternoon, she's driving home from her parents' house with the kids. Mm-hmm. She sees an ice cream cone-shaped craft floating above their car that follows them all the way home. And finally, she can't deny it that her husband's telling the truth. All the kids see it as well. Chris, uh, when she tells the MUFON investigator this, she also adds, oh, by the way, do you guys know anything about shadow beings? And he's like, what what did you see? Chris has no idea about this. She then opens up to the MUFON investigator saying, oh yeah, I was um, in the living room and two orbs floated in and then just like a Pokemon ball, two giant shadow-like what, beings whoa. came out of the balls and then I watched them walk through the living room wall. What, hang on a second. What the, what level of ignorance do you have that, uh, oh, I just have a, an ice cream cone-shaped craft follow me. Well, that's where I have... You've just had freaking orbs coming through your living room window yeah. and have beings come out of... Isn't that the point where you go, <laughs> you know what? I probably should... And she should anyway. She should listen to her husband. That's what you do when you're married to someone. I can understand her perspective, though, because remember, uh, part, think about it, like part of her entire life would be the church. So and the, the reputation in the community. And, yeah. Maybe she doesn't even think that, but 
she, if you're ousted from your community, you, so obviously- This is an incredibly powerful tool, the fear of ridicule. Yeah, you want to avoid that. Her life would be destroyed. So she just tries to ignore it. Hopefully it'll go away. Oh but yeah, hopefully now- these orbs coming in through your house will just <laughs> go away. But now she can't deny it. So they actually sign up to the TV show, right? I- I'm always, you know- um, I don't see a problem with this, but I remember when this happened, there was a lot of controversy, you know, out there because it was the idea that MUFON investigators might be leading people along to get stories. But it's not free. Like, you have to fund research. So, this is a, yeah. a way of doing it. Yeah, you're right. I understand why MUFON would make a deal like that because all of a sudden they had all this money from the Discovery Channel to to do more things, like to, to grow their organization. Mm. So, the money was good, but... When, after they signed this, Chris said it was one of the worst decisions of his entire life. And why is that? The whole thing was a setup. MUFON basically handed off the production, all the decision-making to the Discovery Channel. All they cared about was making it, obviously, we know yeah, this. we know it's what like it's like. Re- yeah. reality TV. Yeah. They wanted to make it as titillating as possible. So they basically angled it so that he was, like the question mark throughout the whole episode was, is he a fraud? Is he a liar? You know, is this man Ooh, telling that's the truth? Bad. That's he, not good. He said, um, you know, the whole thing was that, oh, they're going to interview you and then they're going to buy you lunch. And he said the whole thing was rushed in like half a day. They drove him to this hotel and told him he needed to sign some more forms, but the whole thing was a setup. They had a guy with a lie detector there waiting for him and he was grilled in front of the cameras on this lie detector for like three hours or something. And then quickly they did a bunch of filming um, and just slapped it all together. And he just it, it just made him look like a liar. It made him look like a fraud. Well, I guess if you're confronted in a situation like that as well and you're not expecting it, you're probably going to get agitated. So did that affect his polygraph results? Well, he, he passed the polygraph. Oh, he passed. But okay, it well, just, that's good. everything was painted as in this, ooh. That already made their mind up about him. Yeah, how evil is this guy? Let's find out after the break. Is he a liar or is he a crook? Find out next. Like, you know what it's yeah, like. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so, this made everything horrible once the episode came out, obviously. Uh, his children would come home crying. Uh, they lost friends. They didn't get invited to parties anymore. Even the teachers made fun of them. Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, you're... You know, you're the daughter of the UFO guy. Junior had it the worst of all because he was the only one filmed. Uh, He was traumatized because he went through unexplicable terror and then just was completely ridiculed for it. He became afraid to sleep in his own room. Uh, This is the 17-year-old. Yeah, some nights he wouldn't come home at all. Uh, They were just mocked constantly. And obviously, you know, for Yvonne and um, Chris... Just complete pariahs from the community. Mm. Now, Junior, so traumatized by this, he fled home. He ran away at 18. And then rumors spread in the community that Chris had made the entire family crazy. And he felt like he had failed as a father, that the world had ended. Uh, Jeremy was too pained to acknowledge his existence, he said. His, his daughter was just, you know, losing friends. It's just it's just a horrible situation and he really gives a lot of detail and you, you've got to feel for him and the family. It's really, really horrible what they did to them and how they portrayed their experience. Uh, so to try and stay sane, he built, he started to garden. He built an incredible garden and started to grow all this food and he grew so much food, he started to give it away to people in the community. And he thought, you know, if they think this way about me, at least I can show them I'm a good person. Yeah, build a rapport again, obviously. And and just, you know, I can provide for my family. I can't get a job because no one will hire me, but at least I can feed my family. And he did an incredible job building this gardening. 
But as he's gardening, he starts to notice how painful everything is. Like just bending over is starting to hurt and grabbing things is really painful. Eventually, he goes to the doctor to get checked out. He's diagnosed with rheumato- uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Oh. Yeah, and that, that might be connected though to the uh, the Crohn's disease or the IBS yeah. that he was having. So usually there's a gene that means Crohn's disease can turn into rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, well, it's all, you know, autoimmune stuff going on. Yeah, right? but the doctors check him and he doesn't have that gene. They just say you're incredibly unlucky. But again, this is just all the, the trauma, like yeah. hit after He's hit after hit. He's been traumatized throughout his entire life. Anyway, one morning in June, he gets up uh, to beat the heat and he's on all this medication for the arthritis. And there's this weird heavy fog over the, um, over the property. And he goes through the fog. He's like, what is this? It's so strange. And he looks up and on top of his CB radio antenna, there's one of these giant owls. Just staring at him, there. just like just staring at him, just looking at him with this weird look. When he describes it being a giant owl, is it just an unusually large owl? Yeah. Or is it like what we've heard in other reports of it being a like a three foot, four no. foot tall owl? Not like a Mike Cleland four foot tall owl, but right. just a but still unusually just a large, large one, just a big one. Um, and it's like it's hunching down as if it's trying to look at him. Well, I remember that image of what. Mike Cleland had of uh, it being like an owl, but then when you realize, or when he realized what it was, it literally was like a gray that was hunched down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. in the position that you'd expect yeah. you know, a camouflaged gray to look. I'm not sure if this is it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Like maybe they are screen memories. Anyway, he starts to feel overwhelmed because his gaze is locked onto this thing and he's not sure what's going on. He just goes back inside and he, he has this weird feeling that something's going to happen. You got to wonder if previously when they made him believe that his gun, he shouldn't use it that it was just simply a, some type of way to protect themselves from him shooting at the owls. Like, imagine if you're using owls as a screen memory or you're, you know, displaying yourself as <laughs> yeah, an owl right, yeah, right. to camouflage yourself, what better way than to neutralize yeah. the, the threat? Or from shooting them. Yeah. Well, that evening before dinner, uh, his daughter Anna, Emily comes in to talk to him and says, oh, mum needs you for something. He's in his study and he's working. He normally never leaves at this hour, but his daughter comes in, oh, mum needs you. And he goes over and he walks to the front of the house and says, oh, you know, what can I help you with? And there's this immediate like crack, this incredibly loud crack and boom, this shockwave shakes the house. And he looks at his wife. He's like, what the hell was that? And it, a storm had been brewing. So they're like, oh, it must've been lightning. It must've been really close, like really close to the house. And his daughter walks in and very casually, she's like, uh, dad, the, um, the house is on fire. What? How can you just casually be like, oh, the house on fire? <laughs> I don't know. It's just how she said it. And he sees a glow of flames coming out of his study. He sprints over there and like tries to unwind the hose and put it out. Call 911. Fire brigade comes. It's like 35 grand of damage, the whole part of the house. Lightning had struck precisely where he was sitting. Not in the rough room, but... It had come through and struck the chair and started the fire where he was sitting in his study. You mean, hang on, so it came through the roof. It actually passed through (laughs) solid material. I don't know how that worked, but it it set everything on fire precisely where he was sitting. Um, So a huge amount of damage. They're already strapped for cash. And he thinks back to the owl. And it's like every time I've seen one of these owls, because remember, you know, he saw an owl and... Uh, did that happen when he was a kid? Like he saw an owl and had an accident and where he saw the owl was exactly where his wife, first wife passed away as well. So, so it's not, it's not him. It's the owls. Well, it's almost like they're messengers of doom. 
Anyway, a year later, his omens. his son calls this this missing son that's just gone. He's like, uh, I'm I'm homeless in Los Angeles and I need your help. He's just become a homeless person in LA. Uh, they manage to scrounge together some money. They buy him a ticket. They get him back. Um, when he's back, he has he has to go into for some uh, operation. Like he has a root canal or something. They pay and he goes to the hospital. Anyway, he's all drugged and he's coming back in the car. His mom's driving his home and they stop in front of a truck and uh, the truck's brake lights come on, you know, the red brake lights. And Junior, who's, you know, still on a little bit drugged from the operation, he sees the red lights and he's like, the eyes, the eyes, the eyes. He just starts flipping out in the car. And that's when Yvonne realizes her strategy of trying to avoid this has just hurt everyone. Yeah. Like, yeah. she's pushed everyone away. The son is, hasn't been able to deal with this very real trauma. And she's finally realizing that, you know, this is, I, I need to change tact. But also, how uh, awful is it for this family? Like, how unfair is it that this family should be mm. you know, exposed to this? Well, a few months uh, later, he runs away again because he's so traumatized. Mm. He, he just disappears again. Um, a few months after this, one afternoon they come home and Chris notices that his laptop's gone. And he's like, that's a bit weird. Where's, where's my laptop? Asks everyone. No one's seen it. Eventually they realize it's been stolen. His laptop's been stolen. What? What? Has someone come into the house? There's no sign of entry, no sign of breaking in. Nothing else has been stolen, but his laptop's gone and he knows he just left it on his desk. Now, what scares him is that if this is a theft, which he presumes it is, it's the level of professionalism is scary. Well, is it military? Yeah, like it's very scary that they've, they've done it to this point where there's no evidence at all. It's just, his laptop's just gone. Eventually, a local MUFON chapter reaches out to him and obviously, they hate MUFON at this point because of what they did to them with the TV show. But immediately, this local MUFON chapter apologizes. And they say, we hate what the head office did to you. Like, we despise what happened to your family. And we, we want to hear your story again. And we, we want to do this, make things right. And they Jeez, basically- though, you know, like once bitten, twice shy with that. Well, through this connection, uh, one of the only good things from the documentary is he met this- um, Hip, this regression therapist mm-hmm. it was the only good thing and he was the only genuine guy they dealt with this Dr. O'Connell and this MUFON chapter worked with this Dr. O'Connell so Chris was able to do more hypnotic regression and finally we discovered what happened in those four hours oh through the regression mm. and that's when the nightmare started for Chris We'll find out after the break what he experienced. That's coming up on Mysterious Universe Plus. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for all the details. Sign up today. Get access to the big extensions we do on every single one of these shows. And if you're a Plus member, you get an entirely exclusive show every single Tuesday as well. More than double the content when you sign up for Plus. You also get a high-quality version of the show, totally ad-free version of the show. And if you sign up for MU Max, you get access to our almost endless back catalogue of content going back. 10 plus years of these shows sign up today mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus all the details are there amazing stuff coming up in the break I can't wait to go into more of this story because eventually CIA gets involved oh fascinating NASA gets involved there's um, some very intriguing people that show up at his house as in men in black 
I don't want to reveal too much, but okay. it's it, it's it gets, it gets wild. All right, That's so it. we're going to dovetail that with the plus extension because we're going to be going into stories of uh, alleged military cover-ups, Pine Gap and its actual use here in Australia with connections with orb sightings, the Tully UFO nest and mysterious electromagnetic gas explosions <laughs> across Australia. Awesome. Sign up today, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. That's a wrap for this free edition of the show. Thanks for listening. If you're on plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break for everyone else. We'll catch you next week. Extension, great to have you with us.